Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be a spectacular day. I've got lots of great things planned just for you, so I hope you're ready. We're going to start uh, the show today back in our study of Exodus, which will be awesome with David Wheaton. And then Ron Deal is going to be joining the program, and he is going to talk about blended families. He's got a big conference coming up as well in October. He'll mention uh, about that. And then hour two is going to be the Sunburnt series. Uh, We're going to continue with Dr. Peter Kapsner. We're going to have uh, Zach Wendall as our guest. It's going to be a really fun show. I hope your day has been uh, going well so far. And let's uh, jump back into Exodus. Of course, David is a uh, host of his own show at thechristianworldview.org. He's also uh, an author and a former professional tennis player and a dear friend. Always glad to have him on the show. David, welcome. It's good to be with you as always, Bill. Thank you. Now, this study of Exodus, I I thought Genesis was uh, really an outstanding study. This continues. Uh, here we are in Exodus already in chapters 3 and 4. But let's, before we get there, let's do a little brush up on the most important points from the last time you were on. I think we were covered chapters 2 and 3? Yep, yep. 2 and 3 last and three. time. Okay. And, you know, for just for someone who's listening today who hasn't heard any of this series so far, you know, basically you have Exodus starts out with Israel is now in bondage and in hard labor. The Jewish people who have come down during the the famine hundreds of years earlier through Joseph bringing his family down and that whole story are now still in Egypt, but they're not free anymore. They're totally in bondage and hard labor. And the new Pharaoh thinks that uh, of Egypt thinks that they're going to be outnumbered by the Jews because they're expanding and doing so well. And he orders all the all the Jewish babies that are males to be killed at birth. You know, there, there's a there's an abortion strategy for you. Oh, wow. And uh, Moses, who would be the person that God chose to lead the Jewish people out of Egypt to the promised land, is born in the midst of this. His mother puts him in the Nile River, and and God has him providentially pulled out of the river by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. And so Pharaoh, uh, Moses goes from being likely raised in a situation where he'd be in hard labor, enslaved his whole life, to being raised in Pharaoh's palace. And uh, there are three stages to Moses' life. The first 40 years where he's raised in the palace of Pharaoh by Pharaoh's daughter. Then there's the 40 years where he's in exile. He flees Egypt because he he kills an Egyptian trying to defend uh, uh, one of his brethren, his Jewish brothers, not actual brothers, Jewish brethren, let's say. Uh, from an Egyptian who's beating him. So he has to flee the country, goes over to this land of Midian, a couple couple hundred miles away, where he becomes a shepherd, he gets married, he has two children. And then all of a sudden, where we left off last time, Bill, was where he's out leading the sheep, and he sees a bush that's on fire, but not being consumed. And he's just taken back by this sight. He's like, what is this? What is this bush that's burning? Well, he walks over to it, he approaches it, and God is in the midst of the bush and tells him to take off his sandals for the ground. He's standing on his holy ground, and this is where God commissions Moses to, to leave the land of Midian and to go back to Egypt, you know, where he's been fleeing for this last 40 years. 
And by the way, Moses, where he meets his burning, where he meets God in this burning bush, is on Mount Sinai. And, and this is where, in the future, I don't know how many years later, maybe several years later, Moses is going to go back to Egypt, lead the people out, and come back to the same place where he's going to receive the Ten Commandments from God himself. So this is a really amazing scene uh, in, in Exodus. And really, the, the points we talked about last time, Bill, was that God hasn't forgotten about his covenant with Israel. You know, for the la- several hundred years now, they've been enslaved. And, and, and there's this incredible passage in chapter 2, verse 24, says, So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. So there, there's this idea that God is—he's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He sees our distress, our sufferings in life. He may not seem close, but he is, and he's there, and he cares. And now he's going to do something about it uh, for the Jewish people, and he's going to have Moses, who is in a very unlikely situation as a shepherd hundreds of miles away. He's, gonna, he's prepared him for this role that he's going to play uh, to lead his people out of Egypt into the Promised Land. Mm-hmm. David, the word Shekinah does not appear in the Bible, but the concept clearly does. Uh, this burning bush— great example of the Shekinah glory? Yeah, the Shekinah glory was, you know, what what was the the, the pillar of fire, I believe, or mm-hmm. or just the, the presence of God uh, over, over the tabernacle, over the Holy of Holies during when they would travel throughout the, uh, the wilderness going from Egypt to uh, the Promised Land. And this was, this should have been a, a great confidence builder for the Jewish people, knowing that God is in their presence. I mean, here, here we have God himself leading us in a, in a pillar of, of, of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, uh, leading us away. So that's what's kind of hard to understand in this, but we look at our own natures and we're the same way. You know, God can do great things in our life. He's revealed himself in his word. He's revealed himself in his son. And yet we so easily seem to lose confidence that, that God is on our side if we, we, we have come to him in repentance and faith. If we're true believers, you know, God is our God. He he's promises us success, and that's what he's doing here in, in the life of Moses. As he's commissioning him, he's basically promising him that you're going to be successful. So there should be no hesitation by Moses. But as we just got into a little bit last time, we see that Moses brings up these five objections. Yeah, and I'm really excited to, to dig into these and spend a little time in each one because um, Moses objected to God's call, like you said, and let's go over some of the reasons and what were Moses's five objections. Well, the, the, the first question, even before you get to the first objection, is why does he object? You know, because, again, God is speaking to him directly out of a burning bush. <laughs> yeah. He says to him, uh, in verse chapter 3, verse 9, Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. I have seen the oppression which which the Egyptians are oppressing him. So again, God is fully aware of what's going on. And then in verse 10, he says, Therefore, come now, and I will send you. Okay, I will send you, not someone else. I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. You know, Moses' answer should have been, all right, let's go, right? I mean, right. God himself is telling me. Not only is he telling me, but he's promising success. At the end of that, at that verse there, he says, you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of you. In other words, you're going to be able to do it. I'm telling you, you're going to win the game before you even— it's like, it's like <laughs> telling you you're going to win the match or the game right. even before you go into it. I mean, how nice would that be? Well, I uh, know. It'd be great. 
it would be great. And but that's what really God does promise his followers. He promises us success too. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And so there's so many promises that God gives us in Scripture. It says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. Acts 2.21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a promise from God. If you're listening today, and if you've never called on the name of the Lord to be saved from your sin, you will be saved if you call on him, if you repent of your sin and put your faith in what Christ did for you on the cross. There's all these incredible promises of Scripture, and so God is promising Moses success on this leading of his people out of Egypt. And the first objection that that Moses comes up with is that, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? He, he's claiming that, well, I'm inadequate. I'm really not prepared for this. And God tells him immediately, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that it is, is I who have sent you. I will bring you back to worship me at this mountain. I mean, he's promising that, God, that I will be with you. I mean, what more do we need in life than that? I mean, does anything matter more than, than that, that God is on our side, that God is with us, that everything is going to be okay? By the way, even if we die, it's going to be okay, because then we get to go meet God face-to-face -face in heaven. So this was the first objection uh, that Moses made, was that, you know, I'm, just, I'm inadequate for this, but he shouldn't have felt that way because God was going to be with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the evidence is so clear. You're getting the strongest message possible from God who is in a burning bush, and you're still showing reluctance. I mean, that is a toughie. It is. It is, Bill. And it's interesting, though, because it's sometimes easy to sit here in our armchair, you know, quarterbacking here. And, I think and look we should, David. Say, well, we would have done very different and so forth. But yeah. I think in each of these objections, we can see some of ourselves. I mean, who, who would have thought that, you know, who would think they're adequate to your, your, your shepherding in Midian a couple hundred miles away? You've been exiled from the country. You know what? That was a long time ago. I'm 40. I'm 80 years old now. This is not really where my place in life to lead millions of people uh, over out of Egypt, and there's going to very likely be, for sure, going to be this huge confrontation with Pharaoh. I'm not your guy. And that's really what Moses was saying in that first objection. Yeah. And I hope every listener is thinking to themselves right now, how many times have I been Moses? That's very true. Something and that, to think I think about. That's, that is the point of these objections, is that we, when we go over them, we, we learn more about who God is, that he's totally sufficient to fulfill and to help us with the promises he gives us. But then it also helps us learn something about ourselves, that we often look at our own inadequacies, our own weaknesses, and don't realize that that's not the point. The point is God is so much stronger than our weaknesses, and that if he commissions us to do something, the response is, all right, let's go, I obey, I want to follow, because yeah. you will help me. All right, David, let's cover the last four on the other side of the break. David Wheaton is my guest. We're continuing our study in the book of Exodus. We are in chapters three and four. Right now we're talking about the five objections that Moses gave to God. We'll be right back in 90 seconds.
That music says David Wheaton is my guest, and we've got the uh, semis of Wimbledon coming up, and uh, at least someone 6'5 is going to be in the finals, David. Yeah, who is that going to be? I didn't see the results today, actually. Yeah, I, I didn't see them either, to be honest, but I, I know that um, a couple the of times. win? Uh, he lost. Oh, did he? Yeah, he lost. I didn't see that. Yeah. I didn't look at results yet. Yeah, here we could get carried away. Um <laughs> And I know I, I would enjoy it and our listeners as well. But I, I'm loving this study on Exodus. And we're going to talk, continue to talk about the objections that Moses uh, had to God. And the first one that we talked about before we went to break was Moses saying, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Let's go to objection number two. Yeah, the second one that Moses doesn't want to be the leader that God has chosen to, to take the, his, the Jewish people out of Egypt to the Promised Land is that he says in chapter 3, 13, Behold, I am, I am going to the sons of Israel, Moses says, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, well, what is his name? What, what shall I say to them? And this is an objection that I, I really had to look into a little bit, because it's hard to understand what the objection here, what, what is his name? I mean, in other words, what, why does he think the people are going to respond by saying, what is his name? So I looked into a, actually a, a Bible commentary on this particular passage as to what this objection is, and it, it's the difference between who and what. It's not who is this God, they weren't asking, but what is his name? In other words, they know who the name Yahweh, that was the name of God for the Jewish people, Yahweh, they knew who that name was, but they were asking what had to do with his name or his character. In other words, they were saying, yeah, we know that name, but then why are we in this situation, this bad slavery then? What kind of God would have allowed us to get into this situation of, of slavery if this truly is Yahweh that you're telling us is going to lead us out of Egypt? Now, that's the way I understand it. could be wrong on that interpretation. So I, I see this as an objection like the people might be bitter. They might be resentful. They might be blaming God. They might be doubting God. But right away, God answers Moses by saying in verse 14, he responds by saying, the answer to this objection is, tell them, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is that incredible, you know, who calls themselves I am? Yeah. This has the idea of, you know, <laughs> you, 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 you have existed uh, now. You have existed forever in the past, and you will exist forever in the future. And so he, God told Moses to say, tell them it's the same God, Yahweh. I am who I am. I've existed before. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God now, and I'm the one that's going to lead you out. So he goes back to who God's eternality in, ex in existence to assure the people that there's going to be success on their mission. And that's how he answers his second objection. Yeah, I like that. All right, let's head over to the third objection. And yeah, the, yeah go ahead. Yeah. Well, the third, the third one is, you know, again, so God would say something and assure Moses that, look, you're going to be successful. I'm promising success. And then Moses, instead of saying, oh, okay, you're right, will come up with another objection. So objection number three is, he says, well, what if they will not believe me or listen to me? Uh, for they may say, the Lord has not really appeared to you, and they're not going to believe uh, what, what, what happened uh, to you at the burning bush. Why should we believe you, they're saying. And this is where God brings on further miraculous signs. Remember, there's a miraculous sign right in front of Moses right now in the, in the burning bush, but now God says to Moses, here's what you should do. What He said, what's in your hand? And he said, a staff is in my hand. 
And he says, throw it on the ground. And he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from the serpent. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. And he stretched out and caught it. And it became a staff again. So this, he threw down a staff and became a serpent. He picked up, became a staff again. He did another miracle. He said, put your hand in your bosom. And it came out leprous. He said, put your hand back in your bosom. It turned back to normal. Then he gives him a third sign. He says, if these two don't work, you're going you're to take water from the Nile. You're going to pour it out on the ground, and it's going to be turned into blood. And by the way, that was one of the plagues that we're going to get into in, in a couple of weeks. So God, miracles are—we often think as Christians that miracles were just very common in Scripture. They were not. They were used very spare, sparingly at, at isolated times uh, throughout biblical history. Even in the New Testament, the time of Christ, yeah, there were some amazing miracles, but this wasn't the— the habitual pattern of everyday life at all. God always uses miracles to validate his word, what he has said, or to validate who Christ is. That's why Christ performed these incredible miracles. They didn't have the word of God at that time attesting to who Christ is or what God had said. Now we have it, and this is why you know we don't see these same kinds of miracles performed by men. I make that distinction because God still performs miracles today, but he doesn't necessarily perform them in the way that Moses could take a staff and throw it down and turn into a snake, or a man could raise someone from the dead, as we see in the New Testament with Peter. Those were to be validations of, of what God was saying or of, of Christ himself, and that's why he gave Moses these miracles to do to show to the people, to validate that he had heard directly from God. Now, I believe there's tons of people that, uh, that would say, well, what if I share the Lord with somebody and they don't listen to what I say, or they don't believe me, uh, the truth that I'm saying is the truth of the Scripture. So I think there's a lot of people that will identify with Moses a little bit on this objection. They will. They, they will say that, because his next one was, right after the miracles, he said, please, Lord, I have never been very eloquent, neither recently nor in time past. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Basically saying, I have a, either have a speech disability or I'm afraid of public speaking, and I think a lot of people can relate to that. In other words, God, you've picked the wrong person. How can I lead these people out of Egypt uh, if I don't speak very well? I mean, really, this is kind of an insult to God. I mean, you're, you're saying that God chose the wrong guy. You know, God doesn't say in response to this, by the way, oh, you're right, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, how God responds <laughs> is by saying, yeah. who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I the Lord, now then go, and I, even I, will be with you in your mouth and teach you what you are to say. In other words, God is saying, look, look to my character, look to my nature. I'm in control of everything. And, and this passage is really incredible as well, because it, it, it really implies that God is the one who creates what we call disabilities. It says, God says, who, uh, who makes a man mute or deaf, seeing or blind? So Apparently, according, according to this passage, these aren't accidents in people's lives when someone's born uh, blind or can't see. These are unique, beautiful creations of God that God does for certain purposes that we always can't understand, but it is God who is in control of everything. All right, David, I think we're down now to objection number five. What is yeah. that? Well, this is the one where God gets angry. Finally, he's sort of had enough here, and he says, Moses says, please, Lord, now that you've told me all these things, just just send the message by someone else. In other words, choose someone else. You know, he's just outright rejecting God at this point. And it says God's response is not a good one. He says, the anger of the Lord burned 
against Moses. And then he said, is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he speaks fluently. And so basically, just to summarize this part, he gets angry at Moses. He says, okay, I'm going to have your older brother come. He's going to meet you in the desert. And he's already sovereignly ordained that to happen. Aaron was already moving his way. Moses didn't know that. But he's going to have them sort of as a team where Moses is going to be the leader. Aaron's going to be the speaker because Moses doesn't consider himself a good speaker. And, um, you know, the interesting thing here, Bill, is even after all these objections, God doesn't reject Moses or kill him on the spot. You know, again, he's speaking to the the God of this universe. God could have just ended his life. I'm fed up with you. I will pick someone else now. He really works with Moses' insecurity by bringing on Moses' older brother, Aaron. And again, as I mentioned, he'd already ordained this. uh, Aaron, his older brother, was already on the way. So I think the summary from these, these, these objections from Moses is to focus on God's greatness, not your own weakness. Because when God promises success, and he has promised success for the believer, he will bring it about. I love that message, David. Everybody should put that in a brown paper bag and take it home with them tonight. <laughs> I, I, focus, I agree. And then, focus on yeah. the Lord and not your inadequacies. I have to do that every day when I come into the studio. Absolutely. And it's true. We do have inadequacies where we're not prepared. We're, we're not fit for the things that God calls us to do. But God gets greater glory when he does things uh, in the hands of weak people. And that's how God loves to bring glory to himself. Yeah. David, I love this study. Thank you so much for uh, being so faithful and doing doing this with me. I really enjoy it. Well, I really enjoy it as well, Bill. And I've yeah. benefited so much from uh, just being in the Word on, this, on these passages. Yeah. yeah. Amen. All right, we will uh, continue in a couple of weeks. Sounds great. Thanks, David. Go check Thank the Wimbledon you. scores now. I will do that. All right, thanks. David Wheaton has been my guest. Say, so we have a, a hundred copies of Robert Morgan's book we'd love to give away, and all you have to do to uh, enter to get one is uh, go to myfaithradio.com. You can enter to win. It'd be pretty hard to explain America's history without talking about the Bible, and Pastor Robert Morgan's really done a nice job. This book is beautiful. It's sitting right here in the studio it's a, it's a great book, and if you want to get in on the drawing, uh, we've got 100 copies to give away. So I like your odds. Your odds are good. Let me just tell you right now, your odds are good. Go to MyFaithRadio.com and uh, check it out. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Ron Deal is going to be my guest. He is going to talk about blended families. That's all coming up next. He's a best-selling author. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist. He loves to podcast. He's a very, very popular conference speaker. 
and he is uh, always kind of uh, in the national media. He's uh, president of Smart Step Families and director of Family Life Blended, a division of Family Life. And I know he's probably real happy to be on my show today. Ron, welcome. Hey, Bill. It's good to be back with you. How are you doing today? I, I've been well. I've been. It's nice to hear your voice. I haven't talked to you in a while, so I said to Rosie, let's get Ron back on because it's always nice to know what's going on in your world. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's good to be with you. Yeah. I found out uh, that there are 75% of pre-blended family couples get no premarital preparation. That's shocking. It really is. And, you know, Bill, this is a new realization for myself as well. As you know, I've spent um, now close to 30 years in family ministry, and, and much of that's uh, specifically related to blended families, step families. And uh, recently, I, I've got a book coming out in September called Preparing to Blend, which is really designed to help engaged couples navigate the, the territory to do a do-it-yourself, if you will, premarital counseling. But it's also designed to help pastors take them through that process. But what I did not know is how significant the gap is in premarital training or education, whatever you want to say it, for first married couples compared to pre-blended family couples. Mm -hmm. And so we started looking into the numbers, and lo and behold, um, pre-blended family couples who are engaged, planning a marriage, planning a wedding, I should say, are, you know, less than half of them get training compared to first married couples. And it's really a full 75% of uh, engaged pre-blended couples don't get any training at all. And those that do, so here's the kicker. <laughs> those that do, it's typically the same sort of training that uh, a pastor or a counselor or somebody, a mentor, marriage mentor at a church, for example, that they would give to a first-time married couple. So just imagine something for a minute. Uh, anybody who's a parent right now knows <laughs> that having a two-year-old is a lot different than dealing with a 16-year-old, a lot different than dealing with a 25 or 30-year-old young adult. Every one of those stages requires something different from us in parenting, right? Well, marriage is sort of like that. If, you, if you're getting married for the first time and you're 25 and 26 years of age, no children, just kind of starting life, it's a different need base that you have to help that couple prepare for marriage than a couple that's in their mid forties, for example, and maybe one of them's been widowed or a couple imagine this, we're having more and more couples come to our ministry who are over 60. They've both been widowed and they had 25 year good marriages and uh, they're planning to get married and they've got six or seven or eight adult children. They've got, five or 12 grandchildren. <laughs> yeah. Right. That couple's getting the same thing that the 25 year old couple is getting when uh, they come to premarital. I don't see no. any problems, Ron. Yeah, no, exactly. My friend, like that's a totally different life stage. It's a totally different need. And so we're, so I didn't realize this until literally about a week ago. And we're just trying to get the word out to say, look, we've, as the church, we've got to be relevant to people in wherever it is that they are, uh, wherever they're starting life in this marriage. We want to help them, equip them to go the distance, to have a marriage that honors God, that is a blessing to the kids, grandkids involved in their life. Uh, wow, we've got a lot of work to do. When you talk about a couple like 60-ish or past 60 that might be 
both coming out of having lose, losing a spouse and now they're going to get married. Is there a certain amount of hubris that says, ah, I had a good marriage, I know what I'm doing, don't worry about us? You know, I don't know that I would call it hubris. I think... Of course, I, I don't know what say, that word means. I just like using no. <laughs> big words every now and then. It's a really big word, man. That's a good one. Um, I, I would say... You know, it's funny. We actually did some research, uh, Dr. David Olson and I, uh, from the Twin Cities uh, a number of years ago, and we were looking at couples getting married and forming blended families. And and I went into that study thinking, uh, we're going to find that these couples are not naive because they've been through some stuff in life. Uh, some of them have been divorced. Some of them had been widowed. You know, they've already kind of tasted hard and 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 also they've been married so they know the realities of marriage so they're not going to be naive at all well i was right and i was wrong um so to answer your question i was wrong in the sense that kind of like you know you implied they've learned a few things and so they feel like they come in with some awareness and in fact they do have some awareness but i was mistaken in the sense that while they have some awareness about marriage, they have zero awareness about blended family. Mm-hmm. They have very little working knowledge of what it is to be a step parent, for example, or to uh, marry and have their children move into the home with other children <laughs> that become step siblings. And how do we guide and lead this family? How do we bring our family members together so that it feels comfortable for all of us? They were very naive about that. And what turns out to be the case is that before marriage, uh, how you feel about one another as, as potential husband and wife is really important. But after a blended family wedding, what is even more important is how the whole family is doing and how it comes together. So here's the thing. We in pre-blended family counseling have to equip them to be a step family. It's not enough to equip them to be a couple. And that's what the church, we, we sort of need to wake up and go, ah, that's it. I got it now. It's not just helping them be a couple. We've got to help them be a family. And that's a whole new set of discussions and conversations and planning to get ready for so that they are not naive and not ignorant and therefore don't get blindsided by what's coming. And then how do they navigate with if there's a child that is in favor of the marriage and a child that's against the marriage? And then issues like finances and all that kind of stuff. Those have to be big, big issues. Hey, those are big ones. And uh, that's what this new book, Preparing to Blend, is trying to equip them to understand and get their head around and also do something about it with the children's involvement. See, we're not just preparing them to be a couple. We've got to deal with the kids, too. So the, the book incorporates that so that children have a voice. Children are learning some things as well. Um, and, and by the way, in order to make this work, <laughs> we've got to get church leaders on board. Uh, you know, the person doing marriage counseling or doing premarital counseling in your church, the person, many churches, uh, larger churches these days have a workshop they'll do four or five times a year, and they'll have, you know, 20 couples come to it all at once. That person has got to become aware of what's going on with pre-blended couples. Otherwise, you know, again, you're preparing them for something that's not the reality of their life. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, here's a here's one of the things that uh, while doing the research for this book, you, you mentioned one kid who's happy about it, one kid who's not. You know, 
all of us have heard stories or maybe even attended a wedding or maybe it was even your family wedding where um, you get to the wedding and all of a sudden there's a couple of kids that don't show up or there's a child who cries all the way through the ceremony and it's sort of really you know, nerve-wracking to everybody involved because you can tell that that child is grieving. Not that they're trying to be a problem, but they're just sad about what's happening with the day for whatever reason. Um, I know a lot of later life couples that get married, again, 55 or over, and day of the wedding, three of their adult children aren't there. Like they thought they were coming and then they don't show. What's that all about? Well, that's about the the gap in what the adults are feeling and what the children are feeling. The the adults are excited and hopeful, and of course they should be. They found a, a partner, and uh, they're in love. Um, and their children are excited in uh, in a way for their parent, not necessarily all the time for themselves. And sometimes they are excited for themselves and what they're getting out of this new thing. But they're also feeling at the exact same time they're excited, they're feeling some sadness over what has died. You know, if it was a parent who died or it was a family that died because of divorce, you can't help but have enter into that wedding moment and, and feel some sadness over what didn't happen in the past. And so for children, it's this mixed bag. And uh, often that comes out as I'm not going or um, I'm there, but I'm just really unhappy. I'm, I'm not I'm smiling, but I'm not smiling. And I'm, I'm just kind of feeling weird about all this. That's the kind of thing we help couples and kids anticipate so that they don't get blindsided by that moment so that they are prepared to walk into that wedding. So, Ron, is it important that these conversations all take place in advance? Because let's just say the couple is all excited to move forward and the kids are feeling yeah. reluctant or resentful or still mourning the loss of their, their parent and they're just not ready to see mom or dad swept away in a new relationship. I have a firm conviction that if we can get adults and kids talking about these realities months in advance before the wedding, then they find a new harmony or at least a new sense of how to do the wedding and how to do life after the wedding. It does not mean that everything goes perfect. It doesn't mean that there's not sort of this surge of emotion that rises up in somebody. Um, But it does mean that at least you've given voice to it. People are not surprised by it. It's helpful for kids to to, uh, sit down and give voice to some of this so that their parent hears it and receives it. And, you know, imagine a parent going, man, you know, I never thought about it from your point of view. I can see how this just feels really strange for you. You know what? Because of that, we're going to – here's some considerations we're going to give you as it relates to the wedding. Or we're going to think about putting the wedding off a little bit. Or, you know, whatever that is, it's sort of like, yes, you matter as my child so much that – I'm going to be impacted by what you're saying. It's not that you're letting a child determine whether the wedding even happens. No, nope, the adults get to decide those things. However, at least you're giving the child an opportunity to have a voice, which they often feel like they don't have a voice, and you're being influenced by them. And so the message of you matter to me is exceedingly important at a time when the child may be feeling a little left out and left behind. Mm-hmm. 
So as much as the church believes in premarital education, uh, maybe they're a step behind in premarital blended family education. Yeah, and I, it's not intentional. I get it. Part. I get it, yeah. It's not. It's, not. It's, it's just we didn't know what we didn't know, and that's why we're trying to uh, raise the awareness here of leaders and couples alike. Yeah. Ron, let me take a little break. Ron Deal is my guest, and we're talking about uh, blended families and how important it is to have premarital preparation. And if you go to your church, it's probably going to be the couple counseling that they would offer a first-time married couple, but maybe you're not. You're going to be a blended couple with a couple of new families. So it's important to get the right kind of premarital counseling. And Ron's going to talk about uh, a workshop coming up in October. I think it's going to be in the Atlanta area where pastors and uh, people who uh, work in the church department of counseling might want to go there and and brush up on how to do uh, counseling with pre-blended families. We'll be back in just a minute. More with Ron Deal. Deal is my guest. Ron is an author, and I'm just looking at all the books you've written. There's the word smart in a lot of your books, Ron. Well, that's what we're trying to do, <laughs> help people get smart in their walk with the Lord as they walk that out in their family, and uh, in particular, helping step families to do that well. Yeah. Today, we're talking with Ron about pre-blended family counseling uh, prior to getting married, and there's not a lot of it out there. And they're, Ron's going to do something about it. There's going to be a summit on step family ministry in the Atlanta area, October 14th and 15th. Is that uh, online or can you, you go in person or get the option to watch it online? It is an in-person event, okay. although we do have uh, a digital all-access pass for people who were not able to make the event. Um, in fact, we those are cumulative, that LXX Pass. We've been doing this event now for seven, eight years, I think. And uh, much of the content of previous events is available through uh, this digital pass through familylife.com. I will say this year's event, every year, first of all, it's a general event to help ministry leaders, whether they be lay couples or senior pastors, children's ministry leaders, what have you, to help them understand step families and then understand how the local church can really minister to and reach out. This is a huge outreach potential because the church has, um, in the past, just we really haven't been that relevant to, to blended families. And so, you know, the outreach potential is just significant. And so we help people understand that and set up ministries and continue and bless their ministries if they've got one running. Every year we have a theme for the summit and an and area of emphasis that we're going to do special training in. So the event's new every year. And this year it's centered around this new book coming out, Prepare to Blend. And Prepare to Blend, so we're going to be doing a lot of training around pre-blended family counseling, helping leaders understand couples, the premarital counseling process, thinking about children and how their various ministries can impact kids and teens and young adults. 
um, who find themselves living in blended family situations. Yeah, Ron, when is this this book coming out? Comes out in September, September fourteenth. Oh, good. And in the event, yeah, just in time. Yeah, <laughs> and then the event is October fourteen and fifteen oh. in the Atlanta area. Okay, this way I don't have to feel guilty about not reading it. <laughs> That's right. It's not so I mean, I want to ask you questions about the book, but I don't have a copy of it, and I I don't know what is all in the book. But maybe you could give us s- some more uh, guidance from it. Yeah. So the first thing is just helping couples as well as leaders understand um, the need for something that not just addresses the couple but helps their children. So I just sort of lay out this case for it's not just about you. And I like to say it this way, coupleness is not the same as familyness. And of course, that's what a blended family is trying to do is become a family. Mm-hmm. And uh, so coupleness is about falling, dating, falling in love, deciding you want to get married. That's coupleness. But familyness starts, the process of building that starts at the wedding. And I think a lot of couples come in with an expectation. Here's one of the chapters where we talk about expectations. They come in with an expectation that because you and I love each other, the, the kids like you. They, they think you're cool, and they do. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's going to be great, and we're going to be a family. And so so they jump from couple to family in as a part of this get married, and there it is. We're done, we, you know. And really the reality is, um, yeah, you've, you've created a covenant for your marriage, coupleness, but now familyness is an emotional, relational process that often takes families years to solidify and work out. And so if you come in with a high expectations that the magic happens and, you know, within a couple of weeks and <laughs> we're a family, and then their experience is very different than that. It's not necessarily bad. It didn't, you know, I'm, please don't hear me say it's a bad experience. It's not that, but it's just not as harmonized as you would have, as you dreamed that it would be. And you're just not quite sure what to do with that kid who doesn't want to have anything to do with you. And so all of a sudden you went, wow, this is a little more challenging than I realized. Maybe we did the wrong thing. Well, no, you didn't do the wrong thing. It's just that's the way it goes. So if we can, in our pre-blended family counseling, help the couple and the family and the kids see this coming, anticipate it, recalibrate their expectations of one another, then they go into the wedding with realistic expectations, and now things go more smoothly after the wedding. That's just one example of the kind of thing that we talk about in this book. Mm-hmm. And if the kids are older um, and not showing up, what's a parent to do? Yeah, well, obviously. They're adults. They can get, do what they want, but it's yeah, awfully yeah, sad. Exactly. And, um, you know, here's the thing. If you're blindsided by that, well, it's your wedding day, so you're going to get married, Right. But afterwards, obviously, there is some repair that needs to take place. Something has happened. What's this about? I need to listen as the, as the parent. Listen to your child, your adult child. Hear them out. Try to understand. Um, try to make sense of it. By the way, we help adult children make sense of their feelings around, oh, wow, it doesn't feel like home anymore. Like, okay, dad got married. She's a wonderful woman. Um, but when I go to dad's house, it doesn't feel like home anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, she's there. She has a, kids of her own and grandkids. And my, now my dad is invested in her grandkids, not my kids, right? I mean, so it's sort of like, I don't know what to make of that. And that's the familyness question that adult children have to struggle with. So we try to help bridge that gap between what the parents are feeling and what the adult children 
are feeling. Mm-hmm. Ron, if there's young ki- younger kids um, and the kids really don't want this to happen, uh, what sort of sense does the, 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 the parent have to say, well, I'm just going to continue to stay focused on my kids and get them into adulthood and then maybe consider my own life after that? I wrote another book called Dating and the Single Parent. Okay. And that book really discusses the question you're asking. Okay. Um, you know, because it's sort of like, how do you know when you're ready? How do you know when your kids are ready? And and it's a process of dialogue and discussion and hearing one another. I, I think the answer that I would give today is, well, um, there's a range of responses that a parent can take. I would encourage you to avoid the extremes. One extreme would be, well, I don't care what my kid says, I'm getting married. Well, I, I, I'm here to tell you, you're going to have a lot of pain on the other oh, side yeah. of that wedding. Yeah as a result of this child feeling abandoned by you and then rejecting your spouse and your marriage and not have any good attitude. And it's going to be hard for everybody. So that's avoid that extreme. The other extreme would be, well, I guess I'm calling off the wedding. My child's not in favor of it. Well, I wouldn't do that either. You know, that's giving them way too much power. Most people need to try to find the middle, which means Okay, continue to date. Um, if the wedding's tomorrow, you might want to think about putting it off a little bit, but you're not canceling. You're going to continue to listen to your child. What's going on? What's this about? What are you feeling? Explore, listen, um, maybe get some counselor, premarital counselor to kind of help you bridge this gap with your child. Try to figure out if you can improve that situation and then you feel more confident about moving forward. You know, real life is somewhere in the middle of that. Um, It's sort of like if somebody said to you, well, you might have some money in the bank after you get married. You might not. Well, you know what? You might want to slow down a little bit and consider, (laughs) well, well, should we get married or is that 401k just completely going away Mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason? Like you would take that seriously. Well, of course you would. You want to have a family where people feel loved and honored and safe. That's the whole point of God creating families in the first place. The last thing you want to do is inadvertently create more discomfort and pain in your home than what you've already experienced. So, again, we try to help people think it through, take some steps to do something about it to help try to – understand the problem and resolve it to whatever degree they can, and then make decisions based on that. Mm -hmm. Ron, when did you write the book with uh, Dr. Gary Chapman called Building Love Together in Blended Families? Yeah, that book came out in 2020, right before this little thing called the pandemic. I heard about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So February of 2020, that book came out, and in March, you know, the world kind of came to a halt. Um, And, you know, we have had so such good response to that book, Building Love Together and Blended Families. It's really the book I would say to people, read that one once you get married. That's the book about bonding and how relationships come together over time between step-siblings, between parents and stepchildren, um, between grandparents and grand uh, step-grandchildren. That book is about bonding and, ha- and applying those five love language principles to those developing relationships. So if we could put them in order, it would be dating in the single parent is about how do we date and how do we make decisions about marriage? Okay, we're engaged now. That's preparing to blend comes out in September. And then we're married. Let's keep moving forward. That's building love together and blended families. 
Yeah. So really the bottom line is make sure you take this blended family idea very, very seriously. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And the summit on step family ministry, um, is an event to again, help churches empower leaders to understand blended families and minister to them where they are. It's a great event. We've done it a number of years now. Again, every year it's new people come from all over the country, some, some all over the world. And, it's an exciting ministry, I got to tell you, Bill, because because we're helping the church connect to people in their community. We whether you whether you know it or not, the non-traditional family is the new traditional family, mm-hmm. and I, I you know I fear too many leaders are sort of still living in the bubble of who family used to be, mm-hmm. and and they're not connecting well. We try to help them connect well to to people around their church today. Yeah. Ron, thanks so much for doing the show. I look forward to chatting with you again when the book comes out. Let's do that. Thanks. You bet. You bet. Ron Deal's been my guest. Go to rondeal.org, rondeal.org. Take a little break, and then hour two is just ahead. Dr. Peter Kaffner is in the green room uh, drinking a complimentary water. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk uh, about the Bible study. Uh, it's a one-year program of how to study the Bible and how it relates to you. That's all coming up next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.